Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. The wide range of health disparities impacting people of color and Latinos result in harsh and life-altering consequences. Moreover, the COVID-19 pandemic has only worsened these issues, leading to a wider gap in countless medical disparities, including rising rates of disease, poverty, and mental health issues. Today, Dr. Eliseo J. Perez Estable, the director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, and Dr. Amelie G. Ramirez, director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research at UT Health San Antonio, joined to discuss the issues impacting Latinos, how the pandemic has made things harder for this group, and what action needs to be taken to solve this problem. From, from both of your perspectives, what do the terms structural racism mean and, and how do they connect with health disparities? Dr. President Stable, why don't you kind of open us up? So the, the concept of structural racism and how it influences health is one that I personally have um, been thinking about for a number of years. I, I started thinking about this actually way back in one of the Redes meetings, um, Amelie, uh, when we were thinking about the opposite of cultural competency in healthcare, and we we keep throwing around that term and 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 not really knowing how to measure it or what to do with it, and at the time the discussion led to a conclusion for me that well this is an organizational concept, uh, it's not necessarily a research concept, and so I'm not sure how we're going to be able to measure it, um, and so I came at structural racism thinking in the same way. Um, many years later, uh, before coming to NIH, or and and when my first arrival at NIH, and early on, the staff were interested in in saying in having us think about this, and so NIMHD did plan a workshop, uh, a scientific workshop on this. The idea was, well, what exactly do we mean by this? How can we measure it? And how does it influence health for individuals and communities? Um, what has become clear, I think, in the last um, six years, let's say, since we started those discussion, or you know, five five plus years uh, here at NIMHD, uh, is that there is now a clear-cut uh, scientific uh, evidence or data that supports that uh, this has been um, a policy-driven uh, implementation uh, that ha- goes back to. Uh, the 1930s, uh, perhaps the, the, the example of residential segregation is the easiest one to uh, dissect because we've, we have had a number of good sci- scientists look at this. When you look at the policy developed to say, well, what are we going to do when the economy gets better? 30s, remember, was the Great Depression. And then came World War II. And when all of those uh, returning veterans were coming back and the war economy was uh, demobilizing to become a, a, a peace economy or a, a different kind of economy. Um, the, uh, the veterans were all made, given easy access to inexpensive mortgages, loans, to purchase homes. And you, you realize that owning property is the main mechanism by which the American uh, families generate wealth uh, and become, if you wish, members of the middle class. Uh, At that time, uh, it was incredibly uh, opportune uh, to facilitate this. Um, African-American 
uh, and, and to a similar extent, Latino uh, were excluded from this because of redlining policies. So banks were explicitly told not to support loans in certain neighborhoods. And there were actual red line maps saying, well, these neighborhoods, no, those neighborhoods, yes. Now that has subsequently been made illegal, but the damage was done. And you, you generated a whole cohort of baby boomers families um, that were able to build wealth on the basis of owning property. Um, that was really the African-Americans were excluded from that. Now at the time, you know, the Latino Mexican community was, was emerging as, as important, uh, but the data that have been generated on this show a very similar uh, marginalization through policy uh, of the Latino communities. Uh, stark in California where Mexicans were, you know, Mexican American citizens were deported in the 1930s, uh, and, but also clearly present in, uh, in the Northeast with the Puerto Rican community. So um, we go back to that and see that that's a structural problem that we never fix. So you can have a structural problem that's, okay, now it's illegal to do this, but the damage was done and nothing has ever been done to address this. When we look at the population data now, uh, for every dollar that a white American family has in equity, in wealth, um, African-Americans have 10 cents and Latino families have 12 cents. So, you know, that's the stark contrast that is structural racism. Oh, it's not because the minority communities have not had good jobs because they're lazy or they behave badly or all the stuff that people will, will come out and say. They have not had opportunity uh, to make progress. Uh, and th these kind of uh, stark differences really drive home the point that this is not uh, a one person at a time issue. This is a structural problem uh, that needs attention. Oh, so eloquently said, Eliseo. Um, you know, we, I, I grew up in, uh, along a border community and it was, um, it was very different because we were the majority there, but it was more like we didn't realize what we were missing, right? You know, um, I, uh, I always talk about, you know, the, the board, I didn't cross the border, the border crossed me. And, you know, I hear stories from my grandparents talk about some of the land that they owned, you know, uh, and how it was kind of taken away from them. Um, so I, you know, began to put those pieces together, but it wasn't until, um, you know, really uh, this day and age and now with COVID that has really begun to shine a light on how many, um, you know, inequities we have in, in many of our populations of color, right? You know, and, and you're so right in terms of some of our present and past uh, discriminatory practices and how that has impacted so much of the health of our communities now and and that we have to do so so much more and you know these the new the new terms in terms of the social determinants of health and and how that includes you know uh, housing insecurity income insecurity and the transportation insecurity all of these things um, are having an impact on our communities being to, to access good health. And uh, we as the, now the, the medical community beginning to better understand that, that and, and helping deal with it as much as possible and, and kind of extending our hand a little bit further into community resources and helping our patients not only get the medical help that they need, but also extending that extra hand and getting them those resources.
and I would extend it to, I mean, I gave you the example of residential segregation because it's easy for me to articulate that, but let's bring it home to organizations and, and all the, you know, the health professionals at the front lines, you know, physicians are the highest prestige by many metrics. Uh, they've actually been leading the way in trying to be more diverse and they're not that diverse. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think that's an, another side of it that is brings it home. Um, you know, it's uh, applying the principle that uh, diverse teams are more innovative. They work better. They they debate more. They consider more more aspects of of a problem. And there's good empiric data again to show that uh, from the business world, from the legal world, from educational world. And yet, uh, we don't embrace that as a method moving forward because of resistance of people who have been privileged because of the system. And until we start that conversation and start to say, well, how can we modify it uh, and not blame any individuals? No one, you know, everyone's defensive. Oh, I'm not a racist. I don't, I'm not part of that. And, and we're not talking about individual bad apples. We're talking about systems that have facilitated inequity. And, and we have to, you know, from the top down, think about how can we modify this to, to break those down? And it's not going to be easy. I can guarantee you that. No, that the whole issue of pipeline, right? I mean, there's a leaky That's pipeline right. all along the way, starting from kindergarten, you know, through, uh, through graduate school. And for example, uh, I, I, I lead a program called Exito in which we train master's level Latinos to consider applying for a doctoral program because of the lack of their representation in, at the doctoral level. And out of the 225 that have gone through our program over the past 10 years, Eliseo, um, we have uh, almost 60 that entered into the doctoral program and 20 have already completed their doctoral degree. But that's minuscule, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of you know, encouraging the diversity, but the stories haven't changed. The students will tell us, says so Dr. Ramirez, um, I, I had no Latino professors in going through you know, undergrad uh, or the master's program. I, there was no one to really encourage me. How do I find a mentor? How do I know what area of research I should go into? You know, these still these very basic and concrete questions. Uh, we had some dreamers coming through our programs who are right now, they don't know what their life is going to be like. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so it's just some very telling stories. And I, you know, I asked them, I said, well, maybe we, we need to um, diversify and include uh, other uh, groups in, in our program. They said, no, because we have so much to learn about each other you know, the diversity of Latinos within Latinos, right? And, right, right. Uh, and so they were just so proud to have, and each one has become their own little cohort of staying in touch and encouraging one another to continue going to the next step. But, um, but we, we need to really keep that um, interest and desire, you know, in many of our STEM programs in terms of science, technology, engineering, and medicine, we, we are not represented well in any of those fields. Um, and, and I think that those are both um, really great points. We've, um, we've been talking a lot about um, kind of like the structural issues that, that lead to the health disparities that you all were just kind of going over. And so I guess like um, my next question um, kind of leans more toward the uh, actual health and treatment side of things that you both are experiencing as researchers and medical providers um, in your past. Um, so can you talk about how these racial um, inequities are seen from that medical side, specifically 
Um, you know, talking about some of the disparities that um, kind of exist, whether that's cancer, diabetes, um, or you can even get further into the um, kind of disparities that were brought on by COVID-19. So it's a really, it's really a, a fascinating question, really, in, in a big, in a big spectrum. Uh, so first of all, from a science side, um, when when information about uh, race ethnic differences in health outcomes started to emerge more clearly, uh, I would say in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, you know, initially it was only black and white comparisons, but of course. Latinos, which the census took, you know, several times to uh, do it, do it at least consistent way. Um, uh, data began to emerge that, you know, Latinos in general appeared to have better uh, health outcomes uh, compared to their even white counterparts, despite uh, adverse socioeconomic uh, conditions. Uh, that didn't fit the 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 idea that social class was the predominant uh, factor influencing health. And so for most researchers and public health uh, scientists or, you know, they, they basically just ignored it. They just said, okay, we, we don't understand it. It doesn't fit our model. So we're not going to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, it emerged that among African-Americans, actually race did matter independent of socioeconomic status as data became clear that, you know, if a black, uh, black people moved on to get college degrees, let's say, uh, they gain less from getting a college degree than whites did. And their actual gap with whites who with college degree widened compared to blacks who only had a high school degree. Uh, and, 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 then, and then the acceptance that, gee, this self-identified social construct we call race or, or ethnicity um, really does mean something, and it means a lot that we don't really understand. Some of it is uh, the cumulative effect of being um, oppressed, of the microaggressions, of the microaggressions of racism. It's sort of a cumulative stress that people internalize or somehow uh, adopt. And then as you become more aware, you, sometimes you... You, you really understand, oh, gee, yeah, when I was growing up in that neighborhood, that really was hard. But it, when you were going through it, you kind of made it. You know, you weren't thinking about it because you, you either were too young or you were too busy trying to survive. Um, uh, and that, that does impact health outcomes uh, in more ways than one. And I think the other area, Eliseo, that's really important in, in terms of looking how, um, how racial inequities are harming health is, is the implicit bias, right, that we see sometimes in our healthcare providers that are providing care to our, our communities of color. And, uh, and so we really need to kind of unpack that. And uh, I've been doing more work in the area of clinical trials, right, in terms of really trying to look at how can we ensure equitable representation of the communities that we're serving. You know, right now, the cancer centers are really putting a strong emphasis to make sure that we have good representation of the populations that our cancer centers are supposed to serve. Um, and, and the Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities has been very strong in terms of looking at that as well, you know, with many of the SEAL projects that, that are going on to uh, make sure we get our communities um, involved, not in, you know, in clinical trials, but also in getting the vaccine to, to prevent the further spread of COVID. Uh, and so it's really trying, and, and when you 
people get kind of touchy when you when you talk about implicit bias, right? They, they, mm -hmm. Most people say, no, not me, you know, uh, but uh, we have really uh, found that, uh, again, it, it's, it's something that starts that you're not even aware of as you're being raised that you have some of these biases. Uh, and, and so that, uh, again, through Salud America, we, we have, uh, you can actually take the implicit bias test and, uh, and kind of score yourself to, to, you know, to find where is it that you stand, we can all make better uh, choices so that we can be more equitable in terms of how we involve our patients in providing the right kind of care. Dr. Ramirez, could you go um, a little bit um, further uh, along with that? Because I know that at Salute America, we talk about um, not only implicit bias, but um, two other areas that really impact um, this issue, which is system justification and moral disengagement. Can you talk a little bit about those and how you see them? Sure. Uh, the, the one that I'm, I'm more, and, and maybe um, Eliseo can talk a little bit about system justification, but the moral disengagement is the one where you know, it's it's really easy to turn your cheek and say, you know, that's not happening to me, and uh, and and you know, you go on with your life versus saying that what is happening to this individual is having an impact on our community. And I personally was in situations where there might be some disparaging remarks said about Mexican Americans told to my face. And I, and you know, when I would raise my hand, but, but I'm Mexican American as well. So, oh no, we're not talking about people like you, you know, and it's these kinds of statements that you're going, but yes, you are, you know, uh, it's, it's our, you know, our counterparts that don't even realize that they're being, uh, you know, um, totally um, offensive uh, to, to, to us. So I think that that um, is something that we need to, to really look at those negative interactions and uh, how we can improve uh, that, that moral engagement for doing it for the right reasons. No, and, and there's always going to be differences. I mean, it would be Pollyannish to think that we can create a society where everyone's equal. Um, we know that that experiment of the 20th century did not work too well. Uh, so I think that it is up to uh, government and organizations and institutions and educational institutions to really address the inequity that exists uh, that gets generated by our economic system. Uh, and rather than justify it, uh, so what can we do to make it less unequal uh, within a certain uh, range? Uh, and there are many things that can be done. And I think the conversation we're having now is, um, I, I really resonate uh, the idea of implicit bias as a construct. I think this is not a blame game. It's really something we all carry within us. Um, a lot of it has to do with our upbringing and what you were familiar with when you were growing up. Uh, and, and then as you venture into the world, you know, and the world is more complicated than when you were growing up, um, then you, you, you revert to those familiarity and you feel more comfortable in, with certain people or certain style of communication or certain ambience. So it's normal for everyone to have biases. I mean, it's, it's, it'd be highly unusual to have someone who's completely unbiased. Um, and, and I think it's a great tool to make you aware uh, because our brains are such powerful and plat, you know, they, they change, they modify, they adapt in a way that um, we, can, we can make a difference if we become aware, we can modify um, the way uh, we think about this. And people think, oh no, those things are wired, hardwired, you can't change that. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example of time. Uh, 
uh, of how this has worked. Um, you know, the 1980s, we saw the HIV epidemic. Uh, it was initially exclusively in men who had sex with men. It still is predominantly that. Um, and that brought in all kinds of biases, right? Because uh, gay men or people, uh, sexual and gender minorities or LGBTQ plus people were not part of the mainstream. They were mostly, um, you know, in hiding uh, with a few communities around the country. So the general attitude uh, of the community uh, and our communities as well was negative. Uh, the institutional attitudes were uh, far from being uh, embracing, um, particularly certain types of institutions. Um, and yet, uh, there was a health crisis that we needed to overcome that bias, deal with it, uh, understand it, understand behavior, intervene on the behavior, and then get uh, effective therapy uh, out to everyone. And I think those lessons are applicable to almost any condition that we deal with. You know, something with these conversations that I think makes a big difference is taking kind of this conversation that we're having from a systems, you know, structural, organizational standpoint and bringing it down to the human aspect. And I was wondering if um, both of you might share as Latinos working in this field, seeing the disparities that exist, um, how, how does that feel for you personally as a human, not just as a, um, a researcher and maybe as a, you know, adding on to that, how does that feel the work that you both are doing? I'll jump in and just say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to still be able to be doing the research that we're doing and how um, more sensitive I feel like the research is becoming to better understand the causes of the causes, right? Uh, there's, there are these root causes that have caused these, uh, these biases to exist and trying to better understand what are they and how can we improve them. And, um, and so, you know, how has toxic stress, you know, impacted many of the outcomes that some of our families are, fa are facing or, or just not being able to have at access to adequate transportation because their communities are redlined, right? And, and we see this as more corporate America is buying up more and more, um, you know, housing and other areas that are really pushing uh, many of our communities that are in the middle to lower income out of being able to access some of these um, services where they need to get to work. So what are we doing as a community? And I think now more than ever, we need to be listening to what the community wants and, and really be more responsive from a science perspective to see what are the solutions they want us to help investigate or to help so that we can improve their their lives and uh and you know make it more equitable for for everyone um so this is what i think is really amazing um you know some of the new research that's coming out well i i heard josh sort of say well how did you individually feel right about this whole thing about <laughs> me you know first of all the fact that amelie and i have uh connected uh really uh is is the reflection of that uh, it's been uh, over 30 years since I, I met her uh, because we were both funded through an NCI grant. Uh, it was Latino, it was a Hispanic smoking cessation or smoking prevention projects. Uh, and, um, you know, we were uh, two of the principal investigators, or you were not right away, but soon to be principal investigator of that project. And we were both Latinos. And, and I think that uh, as we saw the importance of not just uh, being 
part of the group, but really being in charge, being leaders in these groups and seeing the, the value of that and what we brought to the table and, and keep promoting that. Uh, over the course of time, I can say we've made progress. Uh, I can always say not enough, uh, but it certainly has been rewarding to see the growth of leadership in our communities uh, and how we can identify and advance our agenda uh, of social justice uh, with the specific issues that focus on Latinos, uh, whether it be immigrant health or immigrant uh, rights or issues around language access um, uh, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that today remains true is the, the one group that has the least uh, health insurance coverage of any group in the United States. And it's, and it's because of the kind of employment they have as opposed to any other uh, explanation people may have. So their work in, in jobs that do not provide healthcare coverage. So all of these things uh, become critical for, for us uh, in, in that regards. And, and I think it makes a big difference. We talked about a lot of different ways that folks can address whether that's at the um, legislative level or just the interpersonal level, um, ways they can address some of these issues. Uh, could, could both of you provide um, a little encouragement or maybe a call to action on why our listeners should start, you know, taking action today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's really important that we have the goal to really want the best health for all. And, and how are we going to get there? And part of it is to better understand ourselves and to make sure that we are doing the best for everyone. And I'd like to promote that through Salud America, we, we have um, a, a, a put together a toolkit in which we have declared mm -hmm. structural racism as an issue and really give you guidance of how you can utilize that in your community. We can, you know, it's a, it's a toolkit with sample emails, how to get in touch with your city council and so forth. It's really more about advocating good health uh, for everyone and to really be, help us better understand all the root causes of, of, of our illnesses so that we can do a better job and provide more comprehensive care to, to all the patients in need. I will say that on an individual basis, it starts with your own, your own practice, your own life. You know, if I was a clinician, a doctor, advising patients to do A, B, C, D, I better sure practice the same things, right? So uh, I, how could you tell someone not to smoke cigarettes if you're a smoker? Or how could you tell someone uh, to eat right when you clearly weren't? Uh, or physical activity, that's probably the one I, I had to come through around because I, I, I used to know, ah, I don't need to do that. But, you know, learning, you know, persuaded by the data and, and, then, and then actually you get better at providing concrete advice to people. Well, you start this way, you do this, you do that, you can... Uh, so I, I think that's really, really important. And then I think the issue of how we treat each other um, uh, partly goes back to, you know, what you learned in kindergarten, what, you, what your mother hopefully taught you or what, what your caregiver taught you is, you know, to be, to be respectful, uh, to listen, to be polite, um, you know, to stand up for yourself. But, um, and, and, to, and, and, and that will get you a long ways and respect differences uh, because it's not just a hierarchy or adults have hierarchy, right? So you, that's why kids get taught that. But I think the principle is that you do it out of respect for other people, 
Um, and certainly as a, as a clinician, that, that's paramount because you're gonna, you know, I definitely saw patients I didn't like uh, or patients that push your buttons or patients that were downright uh, borderline abusive. Uh, and I think people have written about this, uh, but we have a principle of doing the best we can for people and we try to do work within within those uh, constraints uh, as opposed to you can't walk away from it because you're you're, you're you're a clinician uh, but uh, and I think in that regards uh, providing service and support and understanding I think is important so a special thanks to dr. Perez Estable and dr. Ramirez for joining us in this discussion a special thanks to the National Institute of Health's Community Engagement Alliance for making this podcast series possible. Find out more about NAHCL at salud.to slash salud talks.